Hi there, Dalit Kaplan here with you on The Gender Agenda, where we cover all things gender, be it art, politics, health, relationships, career advice, you name it, anything that has a gender perspective. And for the month of February, we're talking about fertility, pregnancy and childbirth. Stay tuned. This is The Gender Agenda and I'm Dalit Kaplan. Well, we've covered miscarriage, childbirth, navigating specialists when you're pregnant and... But what happens when it doesn't... Well, happen when you don't get pregnant. One in seven Australian couples reportedly have trouble conceiving, but fertility is much bigger than a man and a woman trying to make a baby. Fertility... Has seen, has, is seen by many as a social issue. It arises in the context of same-sex couples. It arises an, as an issue for single people who want to have children regardless of whether or not they have a partner. And, of course, it's the elephant in the room for many women who want to have children but have other things that they want to do first, which is reasonable, except biology seems to have other ideas. Today we are truly privileged to be joined by obstetrician, gynaecologist and reproductive endocrinologist, Dr. Rayleigh Liu, who is a fertility specialist based here in Melbourne. Welcome, Rayleigh. Thank you for having me. Great to have you. Tell us, Rayleigh, tell us a little bit about yourself. So you're an obstetrician, gynaecologist, also a fertility specialist? Yes, that's right. So I started off um, my medical career as an obstetrician gynaecologist and I developed a passion for reproductive medicine. So I subspecialized in that area and I've done a PhD in, in reproductive genetics. Um, so mainly what I do day to day, as well as general gynaecology, is help uh, women and couples uh, to conceive and, and um, have families and also help women who want to freeze eggs for the future. Mm. And we'll be chatting all about that today. Um, so today for the gender news, we're actually going to focus on one specific news item, which is very important. And, and our guest, Rayleigh, will actually be, um, she, she'll be the, the, the bearer of the news. Uh, but before we chat about that, I will mention that the Gender and Gender is transitioning to a monthly show uh, we some some generally we have a live show uh, here in the studio, but often we'll play produced pieces which are more elaborate or or in depth stories around one particular person, one particular issue. And we've had fabulous, res- uh, great response to those shows, and and uh, we've been encouraged to produce more, but that takes more work and uh, a bit more time, and so it's probably more appropriate to do that monthly. So. The Gender Agenda will be transitioning to a monthly show as of next week. Uh, you will be able to, of course, hear all of the past shows on iTunes, on Stitcher or on SoundCloud and you'll be able to listen to The Gender Agenda's future produced pieces monthly as well. Uh, we'll also be playing them on J-Air. But it's been lots of fun doing this weekly and... Um, and I think that we're only onto bigger and better things with our monthly produced radio show. So back to fertility and fertility news. Now there has been an amendment uh, that was passed last week, I believe, to the it's called the Assisted Reproductive Treatment Amendment Bill. Uh, Rayleigh, 
you've been involved in VARTA, the Victorian Assisted Reproductive Technology Technologies Authority, authority uh, and you know, and and they've been very treatment authority, treatment authority and they've been uh, heavily involved in um, in law reform around this area. Why don't you tell us a little bit about this bill? Um, so this bill is a new law that um, gives all Victorians the right um, to know their genetic heritage. Um, there was a previous bill um, in two thousand and eight uh, that made a difference between uh, donor-conceived individuals um, conceived prior to 1998 and after 1998. And what this change does is uh, make the same law apply for all donor-conceived individuals. Um, The logic of it being different in the past was that historically many sperm donors in particular donated under the, the, the rule that um, their their donation would be anonymous um, and that was their expectation and, and they signed all of their consent forms and, and gave their donation in that context and so historically uh, their anonymity um, was um, protected and their identity and identifying information was withhold, withheld from donor-conceived individuals seeking knowledge of, of who their donor was. Um, so... This new law effectively means that all Victorian donor-conceived people, regardless of when they were born, um, will have a right to identifying information about their donor. So it overrides that particular protective, um, the anonymity that was assured to the donors before 1998 and says, no, actually we think that the the rights of of the children of of those particular processes um, override your right for anonymity and now they can go and find out information. What exactly can they find out? Um, so what what will happen is VARTA will now take over um, management of um, donor and donor-conceived um, kind of people in terms of contacting each other. So there'll be kind of a one-door um, organisation where anyone looking for information about kind of their donor or if um, they were themselves a donor, any offspring that may have been, um, any children that may have been um, conceived from their donation, um, they'll go to VARTA. Mm-hmm. So it, it, in a way, that's a good thing. It, it um, simplifies the process for people looking for each other. Uh, in terms of um, the contact preferences, donors um, will list contact preferences and that can include a no contact preference. Um, so... Uh, contact preference might be that they want to be contacted in writing, they want to be contacted by phone by a, a counsellor, um, or they may stipulate that they don't want any contact from any um, donor-conceived people um, who are born resulting from their donation. Um, so that's fine, um, and that will be upheld. Uh, and it's important to know that it also extends to children, um, legal children of, um, of the donors. So donor-conceived people won't be able to um, have the right to contact their siblings um, or half siblings, um, conceived genetic uh, half genetic half siblings exactly. Um, if their donor doesn't want that to happen, and those um, genetic half siblings are under the age of eighteen, mm-hmm. um, so what will happen is that all parties will, will contact VARTA, and there will be a middle party that will negotiate. Um, any information that's exchanged, but what's non-negotiable is identifying information about the donor. Mm-hmm. So what is identifying information? Um, so really their name and, and their date of birth and who they are. So you can Google the person who donated um, to your parents? Yes, you could. 
Um, okay. And what about other? I mean, I, I, I notice that the language of, of genetic heritage is used, and it's and I think that that's so interesting language gener- generally because you know uh, there's often a distinction between genetic parent, biological parent, parent itself. What does parent mean? Uh, heritage, genetic heritage. What does what does a genetic heritage mean? So, look, I think all of these issues are, you know, really complex for people. And um, to me, it means, you know, how do my genes impact my health? Um, So I suppose it it means, you know, I guess it could mean, for example, to an individual, you know, a little bit like ethnicity where they they come from, you know, in terms of their genes, geographically speaking, or it might mean, um, you know, the background of their of their donor, whether they have some kind of link to that. Um, it could also mean, you know, knowledge about medical conditions that run in a family um, that may be pertinent to that individual. Mm. And um, in your experience, do you find that there are many, I mean, there's a large proportion of people who are part of this process, either maybe they're the children who are conceived through through a donation or um, people who donated once who actually are seeking out this information? Because I know that, that this uh, process was driven very much by a particular woman who, and then Vata itself, who, but this woman who who wasn't able to access the identifying information of the, the man who donated sperm for her um, conception. Uh, but... Are, are people interested? I mean, had, how many people do you... Th- are there, is there a whole group of people who are going to be super relieved now that they can pursue this information? Look, it's really difficult to say how many people are going to um, you know, act on this change. Um, but what I will say is that um, it's, I guess, an acknowledgement from the Victorian government that we've made probably mistakes in the way that we've handled donation in the past in an upfront way. Um, in the past, records haven't necessarily been kept um, in a in a optimal fashion to allow tracing of, of donors, even where donors might not have had any objection to that happening. Um, you know, it's been made very difficult and, and it's not been a clear process. Um, there's not been a, a single port of call for donor-conceived people if they do choose to seek um, information about their donor. Um, so I think... Part of this is an effort to acknowledge that in the past we've, we could have done things better and moving forward to try and, and correct some of those um, those issues that have, have caused a lot of anxiety for particular individuals. Mm. I mean, I think that the, the, it sounds like the, now, now you know, we live in a day and age where, where women donate eggs, but, but this, this, um, the culture around donation grew up in a context in which there were, was uh, particularly sperm being donated not eggs being donated and and I feel that almost you can sort of do a feminist reading of that where a lot of this is tied to the uh, the virility of men and and the shame for men around their capacity to to reproduce and if a man's sperm isn't of good quality or for some medical reason they shouldn't be using their sperm that 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 society at large wanted to protect that knowledge and so therefore it's best just to get a donor you know egg donor Sorry, sperm donor, and then sweep it all under the carpet, and um, and and I feel that my sense in my research is that that's that's the legacy. Uh, look, I think it's hard to it's hard to really um, comment on that because really, what what happened before IVF was really developed to the extent that it is now. Before ICSI, which is the technique where sperm 
of lower quality and lower number could be injected into an egg to form a baby, or an embryo that went on to be a baby. Um, male factor infertility in some cases was an absolute um, blockage for couples going forward to have a child. And and um, there really wasn't any other option um, than the use of donor sperm in, in those contexts. And there are still situations today where there's very few options except for use of donor sperm, um, including, say, for example, in a man who's had chemotherapy and doesn't have any sperm, um, in a man who, for whatever other genetic reason, might not have any sperm, um, in same-sex couples where... Uh, female couples where a conception requires the use of donor sperm. So there will always be um, babies that will have been born with the use of donor sperm that couldn't have been otherwise conceived and, and families that wouldn't be possible. Um, I think there was a very big cultural difference in the way that we perceived donor sperm. We used to perceive it a little bit like blood donation, that we didn't really, as a society, put the weight on, on the, the kind of um, the different issues that donor conceived people might feel. We didn't really have a forward thinking approach um, in the past. Mm. And I think that that really is um, more of what was behind um, the fact that, that donors was, were kind of told to come and please donate. We need help. You won't ever be um, kind of having a, a, a knock on the door down the track from any children conceived from this donation and the concept potentially to donors who often were university students at the time and remunerated in a very minor fashion um, was that they might be doing something altruistic that had no consequences and perhaps they might not even at that time have had the maturity to consider um, down the track 20 years later um, what that might mean to a donor conceived child. Mm. It's so interesting. Um, So We've read or we've heard about there being a shortage of of both donor sperm and donor eggs, uh, or egg donations and sperm donations available. Do you? How, how does the the lack of anonymity that's now being enforced by the state? How what are the? How would that bear on this shortage? Do you think that people are less likely to come forward and offer to donate eggs or sperm? Look, there's always, in terms of eggs, there's a lot more um, burden of treatment for a woman donating eggs than there is a man donating sperm. And likewise, there's a lot more potential in terms of the number of children conceived per donation um, for a man donating sperm than there is from a woman donating eggs. Um, And we can go into the science of that a little bit later if you like. But um, So egg donation requires a, a, a... week of uh, medication it requires a, a small procedure but it's a it's certainly it's an it's admission to hospital and there's a degree of um you know time off work and recovery associated with that whereas sperm donation is um fairly simple in comparison just needs a magazine so it, it, it's not too difficult for the for the man if, if they if they're motivated so um so yeah i think it's that's one of the reasons why egg donors are less likely to um, offer to donate for um, altruistic reasons. And um, importantly, not only anonymity um, is a um, a factor in, in Australia, but also altruism as the um, as the motivation behind egg donation and sperm donation. We cannot remunerate our donors. Um, it's actually illegal to do so, um, nor can we incentivise them um, as per the NHMRC um 
ethical guidelines for ART. Mm-hmm. So they really uh, need to be people who are willing to do this out of the goodness of their heart for the benefit of someone they don't know. Mm. And there is, but there is a, I mean, what's, what's the weight at the moment for an egg donation or a sperm donation? Well, egg donation, there's not at the moment in Australia such thing as an egg bank. Um, what generally happens um, in my unit is that um, someone who needs an egg donor will find them. Um, there might be a friend, there might be a family member, there might be someone that has um, been approached um, to go through a cycle and give eggs um, to a woman or a couple. And um, then they will bring them and that, that to the clinic and that's called a recipient recruited egg donor. Um, there are well other um, egg bank facilities that can bring eggs in from international sources, um, usually in smaller quantities than would be achieved in a um, donation from a, a kind of one-to-one egg donor situation. Um, those are very, very, very expensive. And because only a few eggs are available, the um, pregnancy potential is also um, limited by, by that fact. So at the moment, we have limited choices in Australia in terms of egg donation. Mm. And so this legislation, is like, do you think it's likely to have much of an impact on that? Or I don't think it will going forward. And the reason I say that is that it really has an impact on retrospective cases um, at the moment it doesn't change um, what donors go through on a day-to-day basis and currently the expectation that donors have when they give their donation is that when any children conceived resulting from that donation turn 18 that they'll have the right to identifying information about their donor mm. uh, and often donors are very forthcoming with information um, and often they um willingly give information in excess of what's required about their health and family background and so forth. Mm. It's interesting. So it's a very interesting development and and though it seems quite specific in its scope, uh, this particular amendment, it it raises broad um, a broad range of ideas. My name is Dalit Kaplan and you're listening to The Gender Agenda. I have Dr. Rayleigh Liu, reproductive endocrinologist obstetrician here in the studio today. We're talking about fertility and we'll be back in just a moment. Oh, 
בשביל שוקו נתגלגל עד יות ותא. שוב הפעם נתנגד בפודקאסט נתרגלגלס שירוע. אתה ככה קשות לקפה שזה יהיה גוד מורנינג, גוד מורנינג. Here with you on the Gender Agenda 87.8 FM JR Radio or perhaps you're listening online via iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud uh, or the soon to be launched, newly launched Gender Agenda webpage which we're revamping right now. I have, that was Achinoam Nini uh, Boker. and I have in the studio with me today Dr. Rayleigh Liu who is an a reproductive endocrinologist and an obstetrician, and we're chatting about fertility. We've devoted the month of February to issues surrounding fertility, pregnancy, miscarriage, navigating the information child, uh, around pregnancy, childbirth, and this being the final episode, we're going to look at fertility, which is a huge issue. Uh, in the beginning of the, at the top of the show, I, um, I, I framed fertility as not just being a medical issue about a man and a woman not being able to be pregnant, but it really has very broad social implications as well. And I would go as, so far as to say that fertility is a social issue. Do you agree with that? I very much agree with that. Um, I think that when we have our children is um, such a... When we have our children is such a um, difficult decision for a lot of people um, and um, doesn't necessarily uh, take into account our um, best biological time frame to, to have a baby. Uh, it's something we should really be thinking about in our 20s and early 30s, but a lot of us uh, delay having babies until our 30s and 40s and, and that's one of the major causes um, of infertility that I see day to day in my clinic. Mm. So what I thought we'd do, just because it's such a huge topic, um, is we'd look at a couple of case studies and maybe we can, we can think about some of the archetypal patients that would come before you or maybe people who should come before you or could come before you but don't come before you as a reproductive endocrinologist. And, uh, and, and I think through that we can explore broader issues. Um, the first one I think seems to be the, the classic um, case is, is a person who's just going through IVF treatment. Um, c- 
conce- conception naturally between maybe a man and a woman who are partners wasn't working, and so they go ahead and go through IVF. Talk me through that. What's IVF? IVF um, stands for in vitro fertilization, and what it means is um, collecting eggs from a woman uh, and sperm from a man and combining them in the lab to form an embryo and then transferring that embryo back into the womb of the woman. Uh, So it bypasses a few critical steps that happen in the body when fertilisation happens naturally, but importantly it also amplifies a couple's chance to conceive by uh, increasing by a factor of up to 10 or even in some cases up to 20 the number of eggs that have the possibility of contributing to a pregnancy that month. Mm-hmm. So that's very interesting. So normally when um, when people try to conceive naturally, there's one egg sitting in, in the woman's <laughs> system and uh, one of the many sperm will come through uh, and, and fertilize that egg. Um, unless you've got twins, but that's your classic state. But there's only one egg out there. But, but in the course of IVF, we're looking at having many eggs. And why is that exactly that there are many eggs? So, look, it, it is quite complex, and I'll try and simplify it so that your listeners um, get a good appreciation of, of what we do. But um, just going back to the biology of us as, as humans, we've evolved to release one egg most of the time because of the way that our pelvis has developed um, and because we walk upright and also because of the way that our babies have developed and our intelligence has developed um, and the size of our baby's brains when they're born. So ideally, um, in in the best case scenario, you have one baby at a time Um, and our babies relative to other species are born relatively immature and that's because we have, a, a relatively to the size of our pelvis, a big head and a big brain. Um, but we are, we do have the uh, evolutionary kind of shared history with other mammals who have um, a litter or many um, babies at the same time. And we do have in our ovaries the biological potential to release many eggs in one month. What we need to do to achieve that is to override all of the evolutionary hormonal signals that have helped our ovary um, evolve to develop one egg at a time and then unleash that potential. And that's what we do with IVF medications. Mm. And so as a result, you would fertilise as many eggs as possible that have been released. Um, So the number of eggs a woman can um, hope to achieve in an IVF cycle is relative to her ovaries' potential to create eggs. And that's very much age-dependent, but it does vary from woman to woman of the exact same age, much in the way that any other biological parameter or um, function differs between people, so does the capacity of a woman's ovary to make eggs. Um, So age certainly plays a factor. A 20-year-old person um, would have definitely more potential to make a larger number of eggs in an IVF cycle than a 40-year-old person. But different 20-year-olds will also vary um, in between the number of eggs that they can make. Mm-hmm. But what you hopefully do end up with at the end of this process is a number of embryos that have been created. That's right. So even in ideally kind of a biological um, situation with a, with a younger woman, there will be some eggs that don't have the potential to go on and be embryos. Mistakes are made. And when we think of the fact that we go from being um, individuals made from from the fusion of two cells to having 
literally billions of cells in our body. Um, the fact that most embryos don't make a mistake at some point is remarkable. Um, so there will always be a proportion of eggs and sperm that mate and have uh, a mistake made in a critical situation where they don't go on to develop further. There will always be more eggs collected than there are embryos created at the end of an IVF cycle. And an average woman going through an IVF cycle would get about 10 eggs um, and I would expect maybe two or three embryos to result from that only. Mm-hmm. So you've got two or three embryos sitting in a Petri dish and then we put them back in the woman's body after they've they've developed a little bit. Um, how many do we put back? So um, my practice is most of the time to put back one embryo at a time. Um, I like to... Uh, in an ideal circumstance, uh, help women select that best embryo by growing embryos out to the blastocyst stage or the day five stage in the lab. Um, we get to watch embryos during that, that five days of development that it takes to get to that point, and we can see that some embryos fail to make it, and those are excluded from the possibility of transfer back to the woman's womb. So it does select out um, the best embryos. Uh, an important point is culturing embryos longer in the lab doesn't actually improve the embryo's quality. A good embryo was a good embryo at day three and it will be a good embryo at day five. But what it does is it allows us to see that and to, to determine that that embryo is the one that's most likely to be a baby. Mm-hmm. Um, the reason that I am a strong advocate of putting back one embryo at a time is that you know I've had a, a previous incarnation as an obstetrician and um, I've been involved in looking after a lot of women um, during their pregnancies and deliveries. And I can tell you that um, from experience, twin pregnancies, although um, thought of by women especially who have had trouble having a baby as an amazing thing, actually can be um, associated with a lot of, of difficulties both for mother and baby mm, because you do hear I mean in in, um, in uh, sort of baby culture you hear a lot about there being many IVF babies happen to be twin babies and I think that there's if you have gone through IVF and it's been quite expensive or, or quite painful you feel that it's more efficient to have more than one baby so there's maybe a push to to put more than one embryo back because you and also I think that the success rate is often higher or historically was seen to be higher if you um, were to put back maybe two healthy embryos and only one might actually become a baby. Is that, is that right? Look, I think there have been a lot of changes in recent years and one important factor both for this conversation also regarding egg freezing is the development of the technology of vitrification for freezing of both eggs and embryos. It used to be that a fresh embryo transfer had a lot more potential to result in a baby than a pregnancy resulting from a frozen embryo transfer. And the reason for that was we lost embryos due to trauma from freezing. That's not the case anymore. So now that we've developed vitrification, we lose a tiny minority of embryos. It will still happen sometimes that we lose an embryo from freeze damage but it's a vast minority of embryos. And we've also developed um, the technique of warming frozen embryos to the point that a frozen embryo transfer has every bit the success um, rate in terms of pregnancy chance as a fresh embryo mm, transfer. That's really quite amazing. So it's really changed the game um, in terms of the benefit to risk of putting two embryos back at a time. Mm-hmm. And what we're now thinking more of is uh, both maternal but specifically 
perinatal, more what we call morbidity or mortality for babies, the baby's risk of having a severe disease or illness, um, or the baby's risk of um, actually not surviving the pregnancy. And the main factor that contributes to that in the case of twins, um, fraternal twins specifically, is premature birth. Mm-hmm. So... Uh, so there really has been a lot of development in that space. Now, now, as we said at the at the beginning of the show, fertility is a social issue, and one of the social issues that that emerge around this uh, question of having multiple embryos is what to do with leftover embryos. What, what, what I mean, if you if you produce, if you've had a very successful IVF cycle, you came out with eight embryos, healthy embryos, you have two children out of it, you're done. What happens with those remainders? So, look, I would encourage patients who have embryos that are frozen to keep those embryos in storage until they're absolutely certain that they've completed their family because down the track, two, three years, it will be much more difficult if they change their mind and want to have another baby to conceive naturally, especially if they've required IVF previously in other cycles. But once uh, couples reach that point um, where they've decided that their family is complete and they have embryos left over, they really have three choices as to what to do with those embryos. One choice is to discard the embryos, to just warm them and let them go. So that's an option. The other options include donation, either to research um, in the field of stem cells or uh, to research in the field of IVF um, in terms of developing different testing techniques or indeed in donation to another couple so that they can go on and have a baby uh, resulting from that the donation of that embryo, much in the way that sperm or egg can be donated. And what ethical questions arise in this context? Uh, in the context of donating to another well, couple? Well, I think make, ma- navigating these three different choices. Uh, so I would encourage um, couples who are seeking to make this decision to contact the IVF unit where they've had their treatment and to seek the advice of, an, of a fertility counsellor to help them um, navigate that decision-making process. Mm. And and I think that it speaks to the question around when does life begin as well? I mean, is an embryo life, is it a piece of biology, is it like a piece of skin or, or uh, a dead skin or is it actually something more, is it the potential? And, and, and that must often be informed by people or the decisions around that must often be informed by people's religious beliefs or spiritual beliefs. I think that's true and I think you know that's different for everybody and um, I, I wouldn't want to impose my views on, on anybody else but um, you know it, it's, it's undisputable that an embryo has the potential to be a baby if it's placed back into a woman's uh, womb and the woman goes through a pregnancy. It, an embryo is basically the potential and instructions on how to, how to make a baby um, but after that point it requires a, a mother and, and um potentially a father too or another mother, depending mm. on the circumstance. So um, so that, that leads us nicely into our second case study that we were hoping to discuss, and that's same-sex couples. Uh, we can be, begin with, with lesbian couples because you've got a body. That, or you've got a, two wombs there and also the, um, the, uh, the eggs that you need also. Uh, but it'd be interesting also to look at the situation of male of male um, couples as well who are also looking to have babies. How does it work if there are two women who want to have a child together? So if a, a same-sex female couple comes to see me in my clinic wanting to have a baby, I, I do the same 
kind of preliminary tests and investigations that I would do of any woman coming to try and have a baby. And really what I want to determine is if there's any factors that can be improved to improve um, their fertility, uh, of the, specifically of the woman who's, who's going to carry this child. Um, I would also direct them to, uh, in, in my case, I, I'm a fertility specialist at Melbourne IVF, so I'd direct them to the counselling service at the IVF unit um, to talk through a lot of the mandatory requirements uh, that, are, that couples go through in terms of um, receiving donor sperm because at the end of the day that's going to be a requisite. Um, there's two ways of seeking donor sperm. Um, you can bring your own donor, so you can have a re- what we call a recipient recruited donor and that's if you have a friend or potentially a family member, um, often of your partner, um, who wishes to be the donor. Um, in that case, it's important for couples to understand that there's a mandatory period where they'll be quarantining of the sperm that's donated before they can use it. And that has two... What re- does that mean? So basically the, the donor gives sperm and the sperm's frozen and put aside for later. And, and one of the reasons for that is giving the donor time to opt out um, after they've gone through mandatory counselling, um, but also... Um, to make sure that no risk is is present of passing on viruses that the donor may um, inadvertently be seroconverting to, like HIV. Mm-hmm. Um, and and what do you find in practice? I mean, once somebody's donated their uh, their sperm and it's sat and been quarantined for a while, do many people change their mind? Uh, look, often when. Uh, a couple have a, a recruited donor. Um, they've had long conversations in private about this, and and to get to the point of bringing them to the clinic, um, there would be a very small percentage who'd go through that process and decide that it wasn't for them. But there are from time to time situations where that happens. Mm. In terms of clinic recruited donors, at the moment there is a waiting list in most clinics, and that's because um, it is a it is a precious supply. Um, once a couple get to the top of the waiting list, they'll then be given options of several donors to choose from um, based on characteristics and um, and a small kind of blurb about the person. Mm. Um, so, so one luxury that you have, I suppose, if you're a lesbian couple is you've got both two, you've got two, <laughs> two uh, uterus, uteri and uh, two sets of um, uh, or four... Uh, ovaries so uh, how do people normally choose whose egg to use whose womb to use look that's very personal and I think it's it's to do with the dynamic of the relationship and um, and it's different from couple to couple there's no set pattern Um, I've had patients who have had two children where each has carried one for um, a pregnancy and um, I've had couples where the egg used is from one person and the the person who carries the pregnancy is the other person, and that that's more common where the person who wants to carry the pregnancy is older, and the um, person who wants to give the egg is younger. That's often the scenario um, when that happens. Uh, but look, any combination is possible. Mm. And do all um, do all same sex couples have to go through IVF? I mean, there's a, a cult, the cultural. Um, in our culture, we hear about the turkey-based uh, methodology, which I don't know if that's just a myth. Uh, do, do you actually have to extract the eggs for women or, or are there other ways of doing it? Oh, look, there are certainly other ways. And look, in terms of um, accepting the risk and having a more DIY method for um, 
uh, want of a better description. You know, if you have a known donor who's willing to give sperm on a monthly basis, um, uh, I, I would still, I would still um, encourage couples to seek at least a review of a fertility specialist so that screening for different viruses and, and so forth can be done from both parties. But um, specifically sexually transmitted um, infections. But um, it's it's quite uh, biologically doable to um, have the donor ejaculate and in a syringe insert the sperm at the right time of the month and you can do that and fall pregnant without any assistance. Mm. Um, in terms of uh, coming to a clinic for assistance, if you don't want to go through that or you don't have your own known donor who's willing to... You, you might have your own donor who's willing to give once but not every month at your bedroom door um, so or bathroom door. Um, so in that circumstance, we can do what's called IUI. Um, which means intrauterine insemination. Um, we don't use a turkey baster these oh. days, <laughs> but that's what that's I suppose the analogy. And and what we do for those couples is we tend to try and increase the chance slightly by using what's called ovulation induction, so that they're often two eggs rather than one for that month, which does go against what I was saying in terms of twin risk. There is an increased risk of twins about ten percent, and you need to just accept that if you choose to to go through any ovulation induction treatment for any reason. Um, but then uh, sperm is taken into the andrology lab. It's processed so that any semen and white cells and any other gunk that's not meant to be there in, in ideal circumstances is removed and just the sperm that's concentrated is injected directly into the womb. So at the right time of the cycle when the ovulation is, is just about to occur, sperm's placed in a kind of bit of a head start position to, to increase the chance of conception. And that sperm will travel up the fallopian tube, hopefully, and find itself a nice, healthy egg. That's the idea. Mm, that's very interesting. Um, so let's move to our third case study that we were going to explore. And um, actually, no, before we do that, let's talk about male same-sex couples. Uh, and and I, I feel like this has been in the news a lot as well around questions around surrogacy because often... often um, men will go overseas and and uh and that's because it's just prohibitively expensive or or there aren't available any women or wombs to, uh so so tell us a little bit about what what a, what journey is uh men likely to go on so look i don't think it's prohibitively expensive in australia in fact it's probably cheaper in australia than anywhere um you know, of the more popular countries that men go to, like America, um, to have a surrogate arrangement. Um, I suppose the barriers are that surrogates can't be remunerated, a bit like egg donors. And um, surrogacy is it's even it's even a bigger thing to go through because you carry a, a baby, even though the genetics of that baby might not be related to you. In fact, in Australia, they can't be related to you. Um, but then you need to uh, give that baby to the commissioning parents and and that's a very difficult thing as well and so there's not a lot of altruistic surrogates putting their hand up um, for people they don't know Um, a lot of the surrogacy relationships that I've um, been a part of have involved family members um, where one uh, a sister or a cousin a sister or often a sister Mm. or a friend a Mm. very good friend and I know this maybe is outside of your um, your practice Strictly speaking, but what what how how do people envisage the relationship that they're going to have with their surrogate, especially if it's known? Look, it is very complicated, and a lot of counselling goes into um, surrogacy um, proposed relationships before they're actually 
um, organised. Uh, and also it's uh, a requirement that the commissioning couple, uh, and they're allowed to pay for this, uh, uh, get the surrogate legal advice that's independent and also a fertility review that's independent um, before going through a pregnancy. It's ideal that a surrogate has completed her own family or at least had a child of her own that's been born in a normal way and has been healthy um, so that we screen women who are at high obstetric risk out of the equation um, because that is a, is a, also another burden that the, a surrogate takes on, the, the, the risk of being pregnant, which is quite significant um, under some circumstances. So, um, so yeah. Look, there's there are there are many professional and um, kind of um, legislative hurdles that couples go through in Australia before they um, get to the point of continuing with a with a surrogacy arrangement. I suppose that's one of the reasons that, in some ways, um, despite the higher cost, uh, many couples go to America, because in America you can commission a surrogate. Um, the fact that they are remunerated. Some people see it as a bit of a safeguard in terms of the surrogate refusing to hand over the baby at the end of the day because in the way that the law's written in Australia, the woman who gives birth to the surrogate has rights of parentage and that needs to be signed over to the commissioning parent. So it's a little more complicated than in other uh, egg and sperm donation situations. How does that look? Is that just an adoption? or uh, It happens within six, uh, six months of the birth of the baby. And um, it's it's not an adoption. Um, it's 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 basically an assignment of parentage. So in the end of the day, the uh, commissioning couple will be on the birth certificate um, of the baby as a as a legal parent. Mm. How would it look if you could remunerate a surrogate? Do you think? Oh, look, it, it's really tricky because you know, on the one hand, it, going through a pregnancy for someone else is 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 a major. Um, challenge and also will have huge implications to your life and your potential to work and earn a living, support your existing children if you have them. Um, you know, it's it's a it's a big imposition on your life. But then, the concern on the other hand is to avoid exploitation of women um, from either lower socioeconomic backgrounds or who um, might be going through an arrangement for purely financial reasons. Um, to avoid that that being kind of the the driver of, of, of surrogacy and creating kind of a hierarchy of of um, kind of a womb for rent, so to speak. Mm. It's interesting because on one hand, uh, um, ensuring that one can't be remunerated for uh, for this for surrogacy does uh, safeguard against this sort of exploitation. But on another level, it sounds like there is great potential for that exploitation to happen anyway and, and arguably it is because people do go overseas, they go to India, they go to Thailand and uh, maybe the protections for the women there are even lower. So it is happening, it's just not happening on our shores. That's true but interestingly we've actually as a, as a nation cracked down a little bit on that and made it very difficult for, for couples to commission surrogate arrangements in third world countries and how we've controlled that is in recognition of the child's right as... Um, as the um, the child of the parents to have Australian citizenship and, and have the right to return to Australia. So uh, I would um, certainly advise anyone thinking about a surrogacy arrangement to seek um, Australian legal advice, um, particularly in regards to the rights of um, of the commissioning couple to bring their baby home. Mm. It's, it's so complex and, I mean, I feel on one hand I feel a, a 
just sitting and reacting and I'm imagining our, our listeners reacting as well, feeling a deep empathy and sadness for the same-sex couple who, who desperately want to have a child and we also know that adoption is, is very difficult here as well. So surrogacy might actually be easier um, and maybe they, they want to have a genetic – they want to be genetically related to the child also. But then we do think about the rights of the of the child and, and I know that VARTA, the Victorian Assisted Reproductive Technologies Association uh, – Treatment Authority. Treatment Authority, <laughs> sorry, Association um, – str- strongly recommends just an, an openness – at the outset about this and and there you're most likely to be guaranteed to have less uh maybe maybe fewer issues around um the path to parenthood and how um how children relate to their own parents in the long term if if you're as frank as you can be at the outset but that's that's also deeply personal and um for another day uh was was there anything else that that you wanted to add about uh, same-sex couples or should we move to our third case um i'd be happy to to move on if, okay. if you think so so the third the third case that i wanted to discuss and i raised that at, the, at this at the beginning and, and you said yourself that the majority of of patients who come before you are, are women who have delayed um getting pregnant because maybe they didn't find a partner or, or um, their career didn't allow or some other circumstances didn't allow for them to have children. And then by the time that they want to have children, their bodies uh, have started to move towards menopause already. Talk, uh, talk a little bit about that. Oh, it's not so much moving towards menopause. And I, I, think, I think there's a big um, misconception um, out there that, um, you know, kind of women, as they get older, still have the potential to have a baby in the same way that we do when we're younger. Um, and the age at which that transition happens, I think, is um, underestimated by about a decade. Um, and I think that's a real disconnect between you know, our expectations and our biology. Um, look, it's a really difficult issue um, because uh, you know, I'm someone who is a strong advocate of you know, women going to university, you know, getting into career you know being as whatever they want to be and I don't want to advocate any message that says you can be whatever you want to be and you can be equal to a man until you have a baby um so I'll just say that as a as a as a going into this but look I think um female biology is different from male biology um the ideal biological time to have a baby is in our early 20s um, and you certainly have more energy then as well to be up late at night and early in the morning, don't you? <laughs> Probably true. Um, but a nice compromise is actually our late twenties, early thirties, um, when we think about education, entry into the workforce, financial independence, mm, maybe being a more stable and mature parent as well, social maturity, mm-hmm. um, relationship formation. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of people aren't in there. Um, the the relation that the relationship they want to parent in in their early twenties, um, but I think you know a, a good message is to be able to have the number of children you want to have without having trouble. Um, you know, you should really be planning to start your family in your late twenties, not your um, late thirties. Mm. Uh, so, look, there's lots of different social impediments um, to this. Um, I've spoken um, kind of with you privately about um, male expectations being being something that's actually really important. Um, in our in my grandfather's generation, I think um, men expected to be parents in their twenties and even in their early twenties, and that was normal or considered normal at the time. I think now, um, kind of 
Generation X, Generation Y, uh, the expectation or uh, or the kind of, um, I guess, some preconception is that parenthood happens later, and um, and that's something that's something we really need to think about how we can debunk a little bit and and how we can go backwards a little bit with that because uh, I, th- I think also there are lots of complex issues in our society around couple formation when people are ready to inverted commas commit to each other um, I see couples who've been together for 10 years but they've only just decided to have a baby mm. um, and, and really those issues are not medical issues those issues are social issues and mm. and I don't really know the answer to those questions mm. and we have actually spoken on the show about um, in the past about uh, dating cri- a dating crisis uh, where there's maybe in cities particularly like New York here in Melbourne as well um, where there are more women than men who seem to be interested in finding partners and uh, and, and that's having huge ramifications for fertility for uh, for the actual relationships themselves uh, for how people date how they think about dating uh, so th- it does have very broad social issues uh, one of one of the solutions I guess you can call it that has been canvassed is the freezing of eggs uh, is that is that a, a are we holding out false hope? Is, is that what, is that what we should just all be doing? Freezing our eggs in our twenties? Look, I, I think freezing eggs is is something that's got a lot of power, but it's it's currently not being used in the right way. Um, in that, uh, the technology to freeze eggs is very sound. Uh, vitrification, which we mentioned in terms of freezing embryos, has come a long way in terms of the number of eggs that survive. But the eggs you get out are the eggs you put in. If you put in 38-year-old eggs, then that's what you've frozen and the majority of those are going to have a problem and not have the potential to go on and be a baby. Mm. So, so if you're if you're single or you're still you know, very much focused on your career, it's not the right time to have a child, but you're... 37 38 and you want to have you you know you want to freeze eggs it, it you might need just to be, freeze a lot yeah so you need to compensate for quality by freezing quantity mm. and the difficulty there is that you need to go through often realistically several cycles of egg freezing to put away a realistic chance of, of using those eggs to have a baby and that's exorbitant isn't it look it's expensive it's mm. expensive um it would be much more cost effective for that woman if she recognized that she was at risk in her early 30s to freeze eggs then she would be much more likely to have a good outcome from one single cycle of egg freezing um, and those eggs um, would have a majority of them have the potential to go in and be a baby as opposed to the minority mm. and many feminist critics have said that this is this is not the answer. This is just forcing women to undergo further biological or, or medical acrobatics just to accommodate a system that requires uh, people to be fully available and not to be parents in their early tw- in their twenties and thirties if they're if they've got career ambitions or, or or anything else that they really want to do. And I think it's important to put that voice in there as well. Yeah. Look, I I actually um, I agree and I disagree with that simultaneously. Egg freezing shouldn't be. Um, labelled and and stigmatised. I mean, egg freezing is a real chance that women have to put away some, you know, solid biological material as a, a, um, you know, predefined and um, confined resource that um, can be of significant use to them in the future and may change whether they can have a baby or not. Mm. Um, However, it is not a replacement for um, social change to allow women to have a pregnancy if they want to at a younger age. And we should be really committing um, to 
at the same time as allowing women who want to to freeze eggs to really concentrating on that infrastructure, social change, economic change, um, workforce um, kind of um, targeting discrimination and having a culture of investing equally in young women, allowing career progress for young women, allowing return to the workforce for both parents in a flexible way. I mean, those, those issues are just a whole topic in themselves that that need a lot of um, emphasis Mm -hmm. in terms of solving the social problem but egg freezing in itself as a technology is excellent um, but the important message is what comes out is what goes in and if you put in a large number of young healthy eggs then your chance of pregnancy is really good if you put in a small number of eggs with poor potential then it's it's a chance but that's all it is Mm, thanks so much i think that's a great place to leave it there I have Dr. I've had Dr. Rayleigh Liu here in the studio with me today, and uh, she's been sharing her um, wealth of experience and, inform- and knowledge with us about issues around fertility. I'm Dalit Kaplan. This is the Gender Agenda, eighty-seven point eight FM. You can hear our podcasts through iTunes. Uh, SoundCloud and Stitcher will be transitioning to a monthly podcast from now on. You can hear on J Air. You can contact us, though, if you have any ideas or any thoughts on the new direction that we're taking uh, through the Gender Agenda website. Until then, have a wonderful week and uh, we'll be back soon. <laughs>